And that's what we celebrate. God made him who knew no sin, his righteousness and his merit, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Aren't you glad? Christ the Lord is risen. Let's rehearse that one more time. Christ the Lord has risen. Praise the Lord. When I was listening to that song and singing, not on key, but very enthusiastically, just a moment ago, it is done. It is finished. No more debt. I, uh, we have much to celebrate, much to celebrate today, much that we will be celebrating throughout eternity, but much that we celebrate on Easter. Last week, we looked on Sunday morning at the triumphal entry. In, triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 12. I would invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 12 again. We will be reading a few verses. It's recorded in John's gospel that after Jesus came into the city and the crowds were greeting him and welcoming him. Uh, We're going to read verses 23 through 26. Um, After the the crowds had come in and were welcoming him and greeting him, they had been with him. This is the same crowd that, that were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and that had heard about what had happened, and that's the reason the crowd went to meet them. And then some in the crowd are Greeks. Some in the crowd are not the Jewish people that were there, but there are some Greeks who were overwhelmed by what was taking place. They wanted to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, and so they went to Philip, uh, who was from Beth- Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And here's how Jesus responded to these people who said, or to these disciples who brought the word that people would see him. This is in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father, I, pray, I thank you for these words of Christ that were recorded the day of his triumphal in- entry in all probability. I thank you, Father, uh, the truth that is in them. I pray that you'll help us to understand and grasp that truth on this Easter Sunday morning. Again, we have so much to praise you for and so much to thank you for. But I pray this morning you'll just put all of our eyes on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In your name I pray. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, the first point in last week's sermon was all eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I know everybody remembers every word I said last week. You know, it's the, kind of the hubris of the, of the speaker that nothing is forgotten. But I do want you to, to recognize that, that we live to glorify God. The Bible glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the book, book of Revelation. His pre-incarnation, his incarnation, his ascension, his second return. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting in this passage of Scripture, I want us to get a clear picture of who it is we're talking about. In verse 23, and Jesus answered them and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Do you know anybody that speaks of themselves in the third person? 
It seems kind of a strange thing to do, doesn't it? it uh, the, uh, again, those that I know that speak of themselves in the third person are pretty obnoxious to be around. But Jesus is doing this for a reason. He's doing this for a purpose. He's reminding them of the title that he has been given, the title that he most often used for itself. It's the title that was engaged in prophecy. If you're interested, go back to Daniel chapter 7, and you'll see this great prophecy that all those kids had learned as they were coming up through Sabbath school, as they were coming up through their classes and through their experiences as adults and then in the synagogue. They would have heard about the coming of the Son of Man, and Daniel chapter 7 focuses on the glory, this one that God has given authority to rule and reign and that God will establish his kingdom upon the earth. And he says it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Who's your favorite Jesus? Is it little Jesus in a manger? Christmas Jesus? Who's your favorite Jesus? Is it preaching Jesus who spoke with authority like no other? Who's your favorite Jesus? Is it forgiving Jesus who met the woman at the well who was caught up and wrapped up in sin, cast out from her own society, and he redeems her? Who's your, who's your favorite Jesus? Maybe you like the activist Jesus who continually flew in the face of the governing authorities of his day. Who's, who's your favorite Jesus? Maybe it's the dying Jesus, the Jesus that you see on a cross who died to pay for my sins. Who's, who's your favorite Jesus? Is it the resurrected Jesus? The one who lives forevermore? You do know, of course, that there is a glorified Lord Jesus Christ. I, there, I ask that question, and I ask it in that manner, because a lot of times we don't view the preeminence of the Savior on a cross. We think of him as a good man. Again, he didn't go further north in Syria. He didn't go further south in Egypt and then only as an infant. He didn't go east and west probably more than 180 miles. He only lived for about 33 years. He lived in a very small part of the world. And we have the gospel account of his birth. We have the gospel account of his ministry. We have the gospel account of his death and his resurrection and that's really very, a very chronologically, a very small segment of who Jesus is. It, uh, it would be like having a, uh, and I don't know, I was trying to think of different examples, having a professional football player come in who is uh, big and tall and strapping and an award-winning, maybe a, a Super Bowl quarterback or a Super Bowl team player, member of a Super Bowl team who won. And you look at him. And the only thing you can think about him is when he was a little boy, when his first birthday or his second birthday. You know, I love Easter and I love Christmas. I love times when families get together uh, and when you haven't seen people in a long time. We went recently up to Michigan and I got to see, we got to see our grandkids again. Well, it had been a year since I had seen the grandkids face to face. A lot can happen in a year's time. And you view them in this way, but then you forget the progress if you look at this strapping football player and you only think of him as a kid or as a child you're missing who he has become I think sometimes when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ we compartmentalize his life into just his birth or to just this aspect of his ministry or to just his incarnation upon the earth and yet the cross and the empty tomb was about Jesus being glorified just a few days after this just a few days after this Jesus had, it's recorded in the Gospels. I would encourage you to walk through them. 
But Jesus has entered into an upper room with his disciples. He's washed the feet of his disciples. He's broken bread, which we will do in just a moment, and passed the cup. He's established all of this in place. He's warned them of what's coming. And they're getting ready to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. But before they go, Jesus prays. It's recorded in John chapter 17. And just want to look at a few verses of this. When Jesus had spoken these words, this is John chapter 13 through 16. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Now's the time. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have chosen, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's finished. Remember, it's finished. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you when? Before the world existed. See, this is something I want us to get. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he wasn't raised to the, what he was before he died. He was raised to what he was before he was born. Jesus is the eternal, preeminent creator of God, uh, or God who created. Colossians 1 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, his church. That's the fruitfulness, which we'll see in just a moment. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. First place. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is a preeminent Christ, the image of the invisible God, the one who is glorified, the pre-existent creator. And his incarnation is it, it, it's significant, it's important. All of history points to it all now, contemporary. We look back at his incarnation and his perfect life, his substitutionary death. He humbled himself. It's what Philippians teaches us, what Paul teaches when he's encouraging the Philippians to be humble he says that they're to humble themselves as, the, as, as Christ did, who thought not equality with God, something to be grasped, but he let it go and he emptied himself. The Greek word is kenosis. He condescended. He came down to be born, to live without sin, and then to die in order to pay the penalty for sin. It's important that we recognize, I think, the significance of who this Jesus is. And that we don't simply just compartmentalize him as a good teacher or as an example or as a model or just a baby that we celebrate at Christmas. Or even just as a figure on a cross. He's God. He's God eternal. He's God preexistent. He's God all-powerful. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Get this, in him is life. He is the life. He's the light that shines in the darkness. Eternal, preeminent, preexistent, 
reigning God. Tina was putting together our Lenten prayer guide, and we wondered how far to go. She asked me, she said, can we go to the Ascension? I said, let's go to the Ascension. Because the story's not done till you get to the Ascension, and it's really not done then. We have the perfect life of Christ. We have this last week of his life that's emphasized so much in the Gospels, how he came into the city, how he performed miracles and taught and challenged people, how he met with his disciples and prepared for them for what was to come. And then he went through these trials, these series of trials, five different hearings, if you will, uh, one twice. And then he's beaten multiple times, and then he's condemned, and then he's walked up to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and there he's nailed to a cross willingly laying down his life they didn't take his life by the way he willingly gave it up who is this one i mean it's one thing if you give your life for one person don't you think for you to to willingly lay down your life for the benefit of someone else that'd be something else but who is this one who can lay down his life and it be sufficient for all people all time everywhere he's the king of glory He's God, holy God. You see, and I had a, had, I was reading a book, and in the book, one of the arguments against Christianity was how can one man's death satisfy the wrath of a holy God? And the answer to that, of course, look at the man. He's worthy. He's more worthy than all. He is God incarnate. This guy went on to say, if, if the father killed his son, it, it isn't that murder? Isn't that a homicide? Isn't that a sin? Here's the point. Jesus is God. Jesus willingly took our sin upon himself. We need to understand who he is that died. Understand the glory of God. Jesus told these guys, hey, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he ascends and he was raised. He is preeminent ruling today. He goes on to say now in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. There's a little analogy. Uh, you, have you guys planted a garden? Some of you I know have planted a garden. We typically or have in the past planted a garden. My mom always told me that Good Friday was the day to plant. Whatever goes in the ground on Good Friday is sure to come up. I thought that's a pretty good principle to follow but the, the picture that he's plant, he's, he is painting them is the seed must go in the ground and die and then it germinates and grows and it bears much fruit it's important I think that we understand what he's talking about he's talking about his own life he is the one who at this point of the conversation is letting them know it's coming now that we're past it we read it and we know that he, we're looking back he was the one who had to die. He died, again, a thief on his right, a thief on his left. But he died alone, facing the wrath of God for your sin and mine. Um, the reason that death is required is because death is the penalty for sin. I appreciate Caleb. I appreciate what he knows about truth and scripture. I appreciate that he knows that the wages of sin is death. We know that from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, we know that sin must be paid for. And we know that either we will die in our sin or that we will accept Christ's substitutionary death for our sin. See, sin, sin's a problem. Sin's a real problem. 
And again, we get pretty comfortable with it. It's hard for us sometimes to acknowledge how big an offense to a holy God sin is. Let me see if I can illustrate it with a, with a, a, a driving illustration. I was thinking about Rowan when I put this together. She just got her driver's license, so y'all keep your eyes open. But I told her, I said, I said you, you can bump into my truck. It's just an old truck if you need to bump into somebody. Of course, Leanne said, I don't want to bump into anything with my car. But just imagine I'm driving my old truck out of the parking lot, and I back up, and there's the church van there, and I back into the church van. I hate that. And I'm so put off a little bit that I drive a little bit further, and there's a Jeep right there, a nice Jeep. And I just kind of swipe around it and pull the fender off, and, man, this is getting worse. And so I kind of back up out of the way, and certainly I'm looking at the damage to the Jeep, and then I back into somebody's Tesla. You may drive a Tesla. Let me say, I back into somebody's Tesla. Oh, my, that would be, that would be horrible. I'm sure I would feel pretty bad about it. And then I think, all right, I got to get this together. And so I just make it. I make it to the gate, and I'm driving down the road. And I think to myself, you know, I sure feel bad about that as I'm on my way to McAllister's to get a sandwich. I feel bad about that. I just hate that. Now, is that a lot of that's where we are in our perception of sin. Yeah, I mess up. Yeah, I mess up. Yeah, I mess up. And I feel pretty bad about that. But you would say, when you say, hey, I need to come back and take care of the problem. Those cars need to be fixed. It's on my hands. I'm the one who hit them. I am the guilty one here, and there needs to be justice done. These things need to be taken care of. And you come to me and you tell me that, and I say, hey, 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 now wait a minute. I know people that drive way worse than I drive. Some of y'all are here, by the way. I, I know people, they drive way worse than I drive. I know people who've hit more cars than I've hit. I know people who've done more damage than I've done. I think, I, you know, I, I think we'll be okay. You would demand justice. See, here's what the Bible says about sin. The Bible says that sin is separated between us and our God. The Bible says the soul is, is sinneth, it surely will die. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. For God to be just, sin must be punished. We, we, we know that. We know that judges are there to punish sin. Don't we know that? You would not want a judge who anybody that came in to say, say, I'm sorry, okay, you're free to go. Say, I'm sorry, you're free to go. That's ridiculous. That, that is a lousy judge. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, God speaking in Proverbs through, through uh, uh, Solomon, says that it is an abomination to God for one in authority to dismiss the guilty or to condemn the innocent. How about that? And yet, what did God do in the Lord Jesus Christ? He condemned the innocent. God made him who knew no sin. To become sin, to pay the penalty for sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So He can justify us and He can free the guilty. How about that? What an amazing, amazing gift we have been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, Look, it's time for me to be glorified. What's this glorification going to look like? Like a seed being planted in the ground. It must die. What is the end result of that? It brings forth much fruit. Jesus came to establish his church. Jesus came to save you and me. He came to establish a kingdom of people. It's what he told Pilate just a few days in the future. When the Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, you said it. He 
said, if it were, but it's not an earthly kingdom yet. It's not an earthly kingdom. If it were an earthly kingdom, my disciples would have brought weapons. We would be engaged in war. It's a heavenly kingdom. He came to create a kingdom. It's what he tells us through Peter, that we are a, a nation, a, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of people who acknowledge him as our Savior and King. So the first thing that we got to know, we got to understand the glory of Christ. And then we got to realize that Christ died for me. Because he died for me, I can be right with God. Because he lives, I can be right with God. Because he lives, I can know him. Because he lives, I can be right with God. But, the, but how do I participate in this? And this is, this is going to be quick, but I, I want you to know that this is probably the most significant portion of this. Focusing upon Christ and what he's accomplished. We go to the next passage in John chapter 12, which is a, a really kind of tough thing to say. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's important, I think, that we grasp. Pretty tough. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's important, I think, that we grasp, that we understand that new life, experiencing life in Christ, requires dying to the old life. It requires saying, as Caleb said in his testimony, as Caleb says in his life. It requires saying, as those of us who have come to Christ, saying, I no longer am going to be the boss of my own life. I'm no longer live my life my way. I'm going to give my life up. As Christ died for me, I have to die to my desires. I have to die to my willfulness. I have to die to my self-seeking. I have to remember that he is it's found in Luke chapter 14. It's counting the cost. It is denying yourself. It is taking up your cross and following him. And, and that's what happens. When we come to him in repentance and faith, we can be right with him. We can walk with him. We can know God fully and completely. We can know God thoroughly. This passage of scripture, I think, is just a summary. Jesus preparing not only the, the Greeks that came to talk to him, but his disciples for what was taking place. He reminds them that he's the eternal God, the King of glory. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is Jesus that they ate with and talked with and traveled with and spent time with and laughed with and wept with and worked alongside of. And he's reminded. Did he give them glimpses, by the way? You guys remember the Mount of Transfiguration? He gave them glimpses of glory through the miracles that he did. And then with Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when, when they got a glimpse of glory. But again, day by day, it's Jesus in flesh and blood. Jesus who's going to be beaten. Jesus who's going to the cross. And he's reminding them, hey, I am the king of glory, the king of all eternity. And then I'm the king of glory who's going to die to pay the penalty for sin. And I am the king of all eternity. He's going to die to pay the penalty for your sins. So when you respond with acknowledgement, just understanding, and then repentance and faith, giving up your life as though you hated it, and embracing his life and his work in us and through us. He surren you surrender, and he brings you to life. And then you can know him. You can have a new life. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. One word really quick before we celebrate the Lord's death on the cross. We live in a pretty nice place. Don't you love Greenville? 
Most of us do. It's a great place. Even North America, pretty much anywhere in North America is a great place. Most of us are fairly comfortable. We have something to drive or at least transportation. We have clothes. We, we're kept fairly warm. We, we have a network of family and friends that we can relate to. And by the standards of most of the world, we're pretty well off. We are pretty well off. And it is difficult for us to come to the point of self-denial, for us to come to the place. We feel like life's pretty good. It's difficult for us to come to the point of hating our life. It's what Jesus said after the rich young ruler came and then walked away. You guys will remember the story. And yet, I want you to understand that when we focus on what's here now, and what's here now only is our focus, and we're living for this life, we're not thinking about, we have not taken into consideration the eternity that follows. The king who reigns today will reign for all eternity. And he calls you, he calls me, he calls all of us to come into his presence in repentance and faith that we might have life, that we might live with him forevermore. But it requires the complete surrender and acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. We can know him because he is risen. Christ, the Lord, is risen. He is risen indeed. And we celebrate that fact. Matter of fact, one of the ways that we celebrate that as a church is through the Lord's Supper.